Welcome everyone, this is the Bread of Life, and I'm Joel Van Hoogen. I'm the director of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism. We have full-time missionaries stationed in North America, South America, Europe, and Asia, and we have ministry representatives carrying forward our commitment to equip and engage the body of Christ in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting in a number of countries around the globe. To learn more about our work and to inquire about how you can help us raise up disciple-making disciples, go to traincpe.org. I'm also the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. Our great pursuit in God's Word is to always find the road that leads us to Christ, exalts His gospel, and finds in Him our complete sufficiency. You can learn more about our fellowship by going to breadoflifeboise.org. We are now considering Romans 3.25, where the authorized King James Version records that God has set forth Christ Jesus as a propitiation in His blood. A propitiation is a means of placating anger and wrath. There are many who do not like this interpretation of Romans 3.25. The protest is that the idea of a wrathful God who needs to be placated is unbiblical, primitive, or against modern sensitivities, and that it reflects the ideas of some tribal, angry, pagan God. Today, we begin to address these arguments while reasserting the biblical doctrine of propitiation. The first protest is that we don't really agree with this idea that God needs to be propitiated because it it doesn't accord with New Testament teaching. That God is a God of love and this is a a wrong understanding of what God is like. The God of the New Testament doesn't have this kind of anger or animosity. This is a pagan idea, not a Christian one. So the question is asked, is the New Testament God, a God of wrath and indignation and destruction? Is he really? And the answer from Paul himself appears to be, this might shock you, yes he is. We have to read these things in context. We have to read scripture according to the context of scripture, not according to what we think is our enlightened state at any given moment in time. And remember that Paul began this presentation in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And there he began by saying, The wrath of God is revealed against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in Romans 2.5, he said that, But in accordance with your hard hearts, or the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's not only that God's wrath is now being revealed and people experience the consequences of their sin, which some might accept, well, then wrath of God is just the natural consequences that I experience because of the things I do, and it's just somehow some karmic backlash, and I'll accept that idea. But then Paul goes on to explain, no, no, you're actually storing up wrath for a day of wrath at the judgment of God. And he's going to be the one bringing specifically this judgment upon you. And then in Romans 3, 5, if this doesn't under, you don't understand this, Paul refers to God as the God who, quote, inflicts wrath. The God who inflicts wrath, he brings it. Now when you consider the context, and then the indictment that Paul is bringing, declaring that human beings are unrighteous and that they're all guilty before God, that there's nothing they can do to remove their sin and the, the judgment that's set upon their sin, Then when you come to this passage, you almost feel as though there is a divine sword of justice raised over you about ready to prosecute you under that judgment. 
And that's somewhat of the context in which we come to this passage. And then you can read the whole context of the New Testament. It's not that God is demonstrating that he's against or that he has wrath or anger towards sin just in Paul's letter to the Romans. You'll see it throughout the writings of Paul. And then you'll see it in the writings of John. And you'll see it in the writings of Peter. And well, let's just go back to the Gospels and read almost any parable that the Lord Jesus wrote. And every one of those parables ends with a warning of judgment significant and horrific judgment that God is going to bring upon those that don't repent and turn to him. And so Jesus will end his parable by referring to places where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and individuals who will be cast out into the fire or cast out into outer darkness. We have to see these things. We have to recognize these things. And then you can go to the very last book in the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, you can read the accounts of the wrath and the justice and the judgment that comes upon human beings who are on the earth in the last day. And this can't just be swept aside because you find it uncomfortable to think of God as angry or indignant against sin and against evil. In fact, it's not even counter to the notion of love. If you have a little child that you love and you take her out in your front yard and you lay her out on a blanket while you're trimming the hedges and all of a sudden some strange dog comes rushing the yard with its teeth bared and it's ready to pounce upon your child, right? You don't respond in tenderness and gentleness. You immediately, instinctively, a rage comes flying up through you as you address that terrible beast that's coming down upon your child. And just pointing out to you that the idea of anger and animosity is not antithetical to the idea of love. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. So, this is a New Testament idea. It's not foreign in the Old Testament. It's not foreign in the New Testament. Same God throughout. Here's a second idea, and it's this idea of propitiating anger or placating anger is a primitive notion that it's something for a past age. All I can say is by my own experience and observation, this is not true. Individuals, human beings, still desire and have impulses that need to be placated or propitiated. Immediately when I think of this illustration, I think of when I was a young boy, and I had found a buggy whip in the barn, and I determined that I would see how good I could snap it, and how I could snap certain things. And then also, it's kind of fun to see how close you could come to certain objects and snap in front of those objects. And then the thought was, well, why don't I see how close I can come to my little sister and snap it? Maybe I can make her dance by snapping the buggy whip, and do you remember this? Yeah. <laughs> So, I'm not trying to hit her with a bug whip. I'm just trying to see how close I can get to her without hitting her. You understand that. See, it was, my heart was in the right place. It was just, I wanted to bring some excitement into her life, and I found this exciting myself. And, well, I came too close, and I smacked her rather hardly. And at that point in time, she's crying, and then she's going to tell my father, which means that I'm in a lot of trouble. And so, at this point in time, I change my strategy, and the whole strategy is to placate her. It's to propitiate her. I start taking the whip and trying to, as much as I can, get it to spank myself. I'm trying to hit myself with the whip. I'm self-flagellating myself. Does not placate her. Does not propitiate her one bit. She gets my father. My father takes me. My father begins to, this is kind of an old-fashioned notion. You might not have heard of it before, but it's called a spanking. And so he begins to spank me. And by the time the second blow is taking place, my sister now is begging my father not to spank me. 
Apparently, one blow from my father was enough to propitiate her. You see, she was placated after one blow and she's propitiated and she wants my father now to withhold his hand because she's satisfied that her desire and impulse for justice had been meted out. There's a story that I wrote in the book Pathway to the Soul, Reaching People by Spirit-Led Dialogue. In the story, it's the account of the execution of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the architect of the Nazis' final solution. He had planned out and he laid out the plan that provided the genocide for over six million Jews. Once he was judged guilty, he was hung in a place that was developed in Israel. He was, he was uh, tried in Israel. And then he was executed. And after he was executed, his body was cremated by a crematorium that they built just for him on that spot. And they cremated him. Then they took the remains, and the remains were placed into a two-liter milk jar, and it didn't even fill it halfway. So these are the remains of this man who had just been killed. And then the high court had ruled that none of his remains were to be put upon the land of Israel because it would defile them. So they had to take his remains out beyond like 18 miles, out beyond the boundaries of Israel, and it would be put out into the Mediterranean Sea outside of Israel. One of the individuals who had interrogated Eichmann during the time before he was put to trial was also an individual who was a part of overseeing or watching, I should say, and being a witness to his execution and the cremation of his body and a witness to the disposal of his ashes out in the middle of the sea. This gentleman's name was Goldman. His last name was Goldman. He had actually been in Auschwitz himself. And he had actually had family members that were killed and put to death under the final solution that Eichmann had developed. As he was holding this milk liter jar that was halfway full with his ashes, he recalls when he was in Auschwitz during the winter time that he and a few men were taken by the SS and they were brought to a mountain of ash and they were required to shovel that ash into wheelbarrows and then take those ashes and scatter them on the pathways around the camp so that the SS wouldn't slip as they were walking about. And he began to think to himself, what is, what is one small jar of ashes compared to a mountain of ash? How many bodies and how many individuals were martyred or killed and were burned to create the ashes in that mountain compared to this one jar of ashes that he held in his hand? So anyhow, they took him out, they dropped the ashes out in the water, they came back, and as they were coming back, this overwhelming sense that... The justice they had provided was thoroughly insufficient for the crime that had been committed came over them all. You'd think maybe they'd been satisfied that justice had been served and answered, that in a sense the demands of that crime had been propitiated or met, and yet they didn't feel that way at all. In fact, when he was asked whether he thought that he had now satisfied himself with what had taken place, Goldman responded, I didn't feel anything. No feelings of revenge because there was no revenge. No human can avenge what they did. Only God can. One person had been hanged compared to all the others, compared to my family, compared to my 10-year-old sister who was murdered at Belsic together with my parents. I didn't feel a thing. I felt like I was seeing something that I wasn't a part of. And again, he was asked, or did you feel that justice was served? And his answer was this. Justice was served to one murderer, a formal justice. He can't be hanged more than once, but that is not the absolute justice. Just justice was not served in comparison to what was done to us. 
This is why I say that I don't know what revenge is, but only a supernatural power could properly avenge these people for what they had done, a power which I call God. Now, these are fairly modern accounts. This is a fairly modern account of an individual who recognizes that this sin has, in a sense, not been answered. It's not been fully propitiated. It's not been fully placated because of the crime that was committed. And, and his only hope is to rest that there's a God of justice who will exact a complete and ultimate justice upon these things. So propitiation, just to say this, is not a primitive idea. It's not some far-off idea located some far-off past, but it's a, a current matter that grasps individuals who understand the gaping holes of injustice that form throughout the world and maybe form in their own lives. Now here's the third thing. We can speak to this idea that this is a pagan notion of appeasing an angry and tribal God by sacrifice. Let me just say this first. Satan is a liar and Satan is also a forger. He forges poor copies of truth and twists them into deceptive traps in which he entraps people. He's not an original thinker. He only distorts what God has set forward in his wisdom. And the distortions can be awful and ugly renditions of ideas that originated with God himself. And that's what evil is. We're setting the background for proving the doctrine of propitiation. God's wrath against sin must fall. It fell at the cross. It doesn't have to fall on you if you'll go there and fall in faith at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. To learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time together before the Bread of Life, may God bless you.